If you're uh, visiting with us, I want to start this morning by giving a little context for what I'm going to be talking about this morning. Actually, beginning in September, we began to consider together in our worship book number six of the Bible, which is Joshua. Joshua actually describes the culmination of many things that took place in the first five books of the Bible. For instance, way back in the first book, Genesis, in his mercy, God chose this man called Abram and promised that Abram, later Abraham, descendants would grow into a great nation and that they would inherit the land of Canaan, roughly what is present day Israel, and that they would be a blessing to the whole world. Then after Genesis and Abraham, we get to book two, we find Abram's descendants in Egypt. And there, in this, it tells the account of how they're set free from their slavery in Egypt. And over the next three books of the Bible, they finally make it to the edge of the land of Canaan, ready to inherit their promised land. And this is where things get difficult. The land is not empty. It's not just strolling in and taking the land and starting to live in it. There are people already living there. Just like when Europe got to the Americas, there were people already living here. Okay? They will only inherit the land by completely annihilating the people that live in Canaan. That's in the Bible. That's the book of Joshua. And it's one of the many reasons people give for not believing the Bible. It's just too much. I can't take that. I don't believe that. We can ask, how could God command such a thing? How could this even be in the Bible? What can we learn from this to apply our, to our lives living out the love of Christ in this world? That seems absolutely opposite. These are the kind of questions why when we came to our study in chapter, chapter 6, where Israel actually attacks the first city, and we're not quite there yet, that our associate pastor, Ryan Moore, last week considered what is this war against Canaan? What's the nature of this? Trying to explain what it is and what it is not. And the essence of what he said is captured in today's title, Canaan and God's Judgment. Ryan rightly showed that the people of Canaan had for hundreds of years practiced the most abominable, horrific things, including human sacrifice and their very worship. And that in this one great action, God was bringing final judgment on Canaan as he gave Canaan to his people. So that there is judgment and inheritance happening at the same time. Now, I want to continue this discussion. I think it bears more discussion and consideration. And I want to talk about God's judgment throughout Scripture 
and especially God's final judgment. We've already hinted at that in the liturgy so far, pointing to that last day when Christ will come and make things right. So let's first, and this is introductory, but it's going to be leading up to point number one, the coming wrath of God. And we we saw two verses, Colossians and Thessalonians, that speak of this coming wrath. We must bear in mind that judgment entered the world when sin entered the world. The Bible teaches that our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God and every single person born except for Jesus Christ, has followed suit in turning against God. Our tragic human history of evil and suffering is the result of our abandoning the love of God and the kind rule of God. Thankfully, in God's mercy, all goodness in man is not lost, so we can even have a society in this world. It'd be like the zombie movie, the, the Night of the Dead, where everybody's trying to kill each other, right? Couldn't even have a society. So he has preserved a certain amount of goodness, but our commitment to ourselves instead of the true God has infected every aspect of our lives, even our most intimate relationships, as we all know. So when we abandon God, the whole world and all who would ever live in it rightly fell under the judgment of God. And apart from God's own action to rescue us, we all, all peoples everywhere, are under God's judgment. That's what we were born into. You may not believe that. I'm announcing to you what the Bible teaches about this. For your consideration. That's why all tragedies in this life announce to us, their warning lights to us, that all is not well in this world and all is not well with us and God. It's interesting when some people brought to Jesus' attention the fact, this is in Luke chapter 13. And when some people brought to Jesus' attention the fact that there were certain people in Galilee who had been killed by Pilate, who we meet in Jesus' own death, he had mingled their blood with his sacrifices. And they're bringing this to Jesus with the kind of hidden agenda of, I wonder what those people did to deserve that. You ever thought that before? And you know what Jesus said? He said, do you think these people were any worse than anybody else in Galilee? And then he makes it personal. He says, I'll tell you this. You will perish as well unless you repent. That's not nice. (laughs) Where's the nice Jesus? And then Jesus raises the stakes a bit, not to Pilate doing something evil, but just to an accident. This tower that was called the Tower of Siloam 
Apparently, maybe it was being built. Maybe uh, it had been built for a long time. But whatever it was, it fell over. And like some such tragedies, modern tragedies, 18 people were killed. And Jesus said, do you think those people were more evil than all the other people in Jerusalem? And that's why they were killed? No. I'll tell you this. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So you see, Jesus, when he says perish, he's talking about final judgment. He is taking human tragedy, human evil even, and saying that it is a warning to everyone You have rebelled against God. You are all under judgment. And these are the anticipations of that judgment. You must seek the mercy and kindness and forgiveness of God through repentance. That's Jesus' message. We need God's forgiveness. We need his action to rescue us. Because all of these things we see are anticipations of our own Death, and not just a physical earthly death, but everlasting death. I know those are sobering words, but it's the word of Christ to us. It's what he tells us. I've heard people say why New New Orleans suffered in particular with Katrina. What would Jesus say? You know, we have the WWJD. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? You think that New Orleans is worse sinner than anyone else? You will also perish in the final day if you do not seek the mercy and forgiveness of God. So Katrina, 9-11, whatever, are warnings that we as human beings are under judgment and we will all face the final judgment of God. This is why C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Problem of Pain. Pain insists upon being attended to. You know that, right? It can just be one little place on your fingernail, but... That's what you notice in your whole body. One little place, but that can dominate your mind. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. And notice this. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So, Jesus ties final judgment to everyday suffering, everyday tragedy. He, in effect, says this announces and anticipates that. Well, let's move then to specific events of judgment in Scripture. We talked about general. Let's talk about specific. Now, we're giving an extensive uh, introduction leading up to point one, but I promise you I won't go through the points much faster 
It looks like we'll be here till 2, but we won't. We won't. 1.30 maybe, but not 2. No. So, in the Bible itself, there are these momentous judgments. They're significant in themselves, right? But they also foreshadow a final judgment. The flood in Genesis 6 through 9 is one of those. Flood with Noah. Peter, in his second letter, actually compares the flood with Noah with the final judgment in fire. Fire there stands for a cleansing of the earth, not absolute destruction of the earth. Just like the water, it destroyed the earth, but it didn't literally destroy the creation. So the fire cleanses the earth in that last day. But he compares the two. He makes it explicit that the judgment that fell on the world in the flood, when all mankind was wiped out except for Noah and his family, anticipates the final judgment of God, when all mankind will perish except for those God chooses to save. See the parallel. And in the New Testament, the ark... Is Jesus Christ. And we are saved in Christ from the flood or the fire, if you will, of the final judgment. And that's the only hope we have is to be in that ark. You're outside the ark, you're dead. Christ is our hope and there is no other hope because there's no one else save God who has come in, taken upon himself flesh And born the punishment that we deserve. Where else are you going to find that? Who else bears away the wrath that you and I deserve? No one. Only God could and only God has provided that for us. And this brings us to Canaan. Okay? All of this to try to bring us to Canaan. Israel's conquering of Canaan is another one of those judgments in the Bible that anticipates the final judgment. First, look at the correlation or the relationship between the land of Canaan, as it's viewed in the Old Testament, and the whole earth, as it's viewed in the New Testament. As God's people in the Old Testament were given this little parcel of land, Canaan. We're told that God's people in the New Testament context are given the whole earth. So this little postage stamp gift was a little token of the ultimate gift of the whole earth. Little piece of land, all the land. Okay. Now, In Romans chapter 4, Paul makes reference to this. So when Abraham is brought into the land of Canaan and he traverses the land, God has him look over it all and says, this is the land that you're going to get. Your people, your, your descendants, your offspring will receive this land. They will inherit this land. But then Paul in talking about it, says something rather strange. But it shows their way of thinking, God's way of thinking, actually. When he's talking about this promise of Abraham, he says that Abraham and his offspring, he said to them, God said to them, he would be heir of the world. You think, whoa, 
whoa, Paul, Paul, let's go back to the Hebrew here. You know, he, he said the land. Paul says, I know, I know. But ultimately, he was promised the world. The word there in Romans 4 is cosmos. Maybe it didn't mean exactly what we said, but it's the all comprehensive world of which it is said many times in the New Testament since the foundation of the world. It's that world that he inherits and that, that God's people inherit. All of those who have the faith of Abraham, which Paul defines as trusting in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul can say, as we've said many times in the last verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, all things are yours. See, like, like God would say to Abraham, this whole land is yours. Look what he says to us. All things are yours. Everything belongs to you, God's people. You enjoy in this life the things that ultimately are are, are pledged to you without sin, of course. And he goes on to say, whether the world or life or death, the present, the future, all things are yours. Again, the world there, cosmos. He said, the world is yours. <laughs> you, you, we say that, don't we? Say, the world is yours or the world is laid out before you. God really does say that. He really means that. The whole earth is yours. And you think, why should I receive this inheritance? You shouldn't, Darwin. You shouldn't get one piece of it. In fact, you should be thrown off the property with everyone else. But in his mercy, in his mercy, he came and bore the punishment that you deserve. And being forgiven and brought into the favor of God means you have the inheritance of all things because you're a child of God. It is amazing mercy to us who had despised God. So you see, final judgment comes right alongside God's people receiving the earth as their inheritance. Just like Canaan. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. How will we inherit the earth? The same situation persists. There are people all over the earth. Most of them oppose the true God of the earth. How are we going to inherit the earth? There must be judgment and inheritance. And I'm not saying that there are, parts of the, there are parts of this that I don't delight in. Paul talked about preaching where he says we proclaim Christ and some are coming to life and others to death because they reject this message. And he says, who is adequate for these things? That our message is creating life and death as we announce mercy and judgment. Now, the flood's easier to deal with because we didn't have anything to do with that, right? God brought the flood. That's, that's fine. I mean, it, every remember, every man, woman, and child, and baby 
died in the flood. Okay? Everybody. Now, if you have an issue with that, you and I, you, you have an issue with God. Why would you do that? Even the awful plagues against Egypt, which culminated actually in the death of the firstborn of every child, or every family in Egypt, and the drowning of Pharaoh's whole army, that's easier to take because we didn't have anything to do with it, right? It's God bringing his plagues, God bringing his judgment. But here, Canaan, this gives us heartburn. And I, I agree, I've had some heartburn over it. I've struggled years and years ago with trying to grapple with the Bible in that way. Here, his own people participate. Now, one professor I had, Meredith Klein, back in RTS in ancient days, when RTS was one campus in Jackson, Mississippi, it was in the 1900s or 1800s, I forget, but... He had a helpful term to explain this unique one-time judgment executed by God's people against Canaan. He called it, and I hope it will help you, intrusion ethics. Intrusion ethics. It doesn't set forth an ongoing ethic for God's people to follow. It's an ethic created by the final judgment Of the end time intruding into history with the people of Canaan. So final judgment breaks into history. Breaks in to manifest itself in this terrible way upon this particular people in Canaan. And that's what was happening there. Just like Canaan at the end of history... God will judge the world and all who reject his only son, Jesus Christ, whom God the Father sent in the world to die in the place of sinners that they might be rescued. All who reject that word will be cast into everlasting judgment and God's people inherit the earth. Now, This coming wrath, you saw it read this morning, Colossians and Thessalonians. It's even celebrated in the Psalms of the coming judgment of God. And we all long for a real lasting utopia on earth. We sing about it. We write songs about it. Where there's no wrong done to anyone forever. All people have devoted, exhilarated love with one another. But brothers and sisters, this doesn't happen apart from the judgment of God. And there's a longing for people who are suffering oppression for the judgment of God. People who are dying. People who's... Families have suffered so greatly and will continue to suffer. People will continue to suffer until the day Jesus comes. And they're longing for redemption. They're longing for release. (laughs) And this is strange. Even in heaven, as we've said before. Because those people, it, it contemplates the martyrs who 
have shed their blood, their spirits are in heaven. And there in Revelation 6.10, they're crying out, how long? How long will it be? Even heaven stretches for this final day. And they're longing for redemption. They're longing for their bodies to be raised. Their body, they're longing for all things to be made right. And remember, brothers and sisters, in Egypt, Israel was not innocent at that point. It didn't just, God said, I'm going to judge Egypt and not you. Israel had to sacrifice a lamb, every household. And they had to smear that blood on the doorpost to indicate that a sacrifice was made for them so that they would not fall, fall under the same judgment. And so for you and me, in the final day, we don't look around boastful, prideful, oh, we're, we're God's people, ever. We tremble because why are we not being judged? Only because we're under the precious blood of Jesus. And would I have listened to that message on my own? No, I wouldn't have even listened to it unless God had given me ears to hear. I can't even say to someone, well, at least I was smart enough to let. No, no, I wasn't. I've been saved by grace. While I was dead, that means dead to God, fixed in my sin, hating God, at that point, he came and rescued me. You get that? It's not because, you know, he's looking for the good people and he's going to gravitate. Has nothing to work with. But people like me. So, the coming judgment. And you might think with the coming of Christ that this judgment would ease a bit. We, we tend to think that, don't we? Kind of, well, those of you who are in the church, those of you who are visiting, maybe not familiar, but we have this kind of history of thinking, boy, things are really severe and bad in the Old Testament. Oh, it's all relaxed in the New Testament, you know. Easy now. You know, Hebrews 2 the, the writer of Hebrews says, if everything was judged in such a severe way in the Old Testament, what's it going to be like if you turn down the Son of God who's died? He, doesn't, he, he ups the stakes. And in this passage that was read in Acts 17, we see that in the announcement of the gospel... First and foremost, like Paul is talking to these pagan Athenians, these people who've never heard the gospel. So he lays before this, these two verses, he lays some foundation about here's your religion. Here's some of the things you think. Here's who the true God is. He, he kind of lays some foundation before the first words he says about Christ have to do with his judgment. That's why later Paul, uh, yeah, in Romans 2, Paul says, according to my gospel, my good news, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. 
What do we do with those people who say we don't talk about judgment? We don't talk about sin. Could be what Paul calls in Galatians 1, another gospel. Some other kind of good news, but not the good news of Scripture. Which, as part of good news, it is terrible to get a warning that you have cancer and you've got to go through these treatments. But what would it be like not to be given that warning? Is that love? The good news is that there is judgment coming and God has provided a way to escape judgment in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul even makes the point here that God is given proof of the final judgment by the resurrection of Christ. So the resurrection of Christ is proof that God announces to the whole world judgment is coming. We're now on the downslope toward judgment. And it's going to happen in a particular day and it's going to be done by a man. That had to be astonishing. Wait, wait. He's going to judge the whole earth through a man? Which, of course, would make you think, wait a minute, who is this man? Get into incarnation and God became man and God died. But talk about capturing attention here. And so his resurrection is the guarantee. Paul is saying... It's the guarantee of final judgment. And judgment has been brought face to face with us in the person of Christ. Mercy for sure, but mercy and judgment. And then finally, so it is the coming judgment of God, judgment through Christ. But then we read in 1 Corinthians 6, The saints will judge the world. The saints will judge angels. Most commentators would think angels there means the wicked angels. You see, we've been united to Christ. We've been joined to him and everything he has, we have only because we've been joined to him. And so we're said to be in Romans 8, joint heirs with Christ. I can't get my head still to this day around that. I'm an heir and I stand right alongside in what he inherits as a perfect human being. I and we inherit. So we inherit the world, creation. We join in his rule. We sit down with him. We, uh, we enjoy his rule. And part of that is that we in some way participate in the judgment of the world. I can't conceive it. I don't know what it looks like. It just says it. But do you see that Canaan is in that way a picture of final judgment? That God's people were involved. And in some way we don't understand God's people are involved. But how should we then live? Just a couple of minutes on this. Peter calls those he's writing to. He said, 
Christ suffered for you, leaving an example. He committed no sin. Deceit was not found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Notice, how did Christ have the capacity to say, forgive them, they don't know what they do? How did he have the capacity not to answer back and revile them and threaten them? He just kept entrusting himself to God because he knew God will deal justly. There's judgment coming. I'm free to love and to have compassion on these people. Here's the great irony for you and me. You might think all oh, this talk about judgment and people of God being involved and we're going to get you know all political and powerful and look forward to our... It's the opposite It frees you to love. It frees you to lay yourself out for others, no matter what they do to you. That's the message of the Bible. And so Peter later says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You're suffering, you're being persecuted, you're being hated. Maybe your family's thrown into prison. Maybe they've been killed. Maybe you're slotted for death. What do you do? You entrust yourself to a faithful creator. You know he will deal justly. Enable me to continue to love these people. You can read about this further in Romans 12 where he actually says, vengeance Just remember, God said, vengeance is mine. You don't have to bring vengeance. You don't have to return evil for evil. You can return good in the face of evil. All judgment is into his hands. We are free, as Jesus said, to love and pray for those who wrong us. This crippling sense of injustice and unfairness, the numbing, crushing blow of being hated and attacked... In all of this, we still would give ourselves up to others. And so, we, we, we look at Canaan and we look at the final judgment. And in the meantime, now, we're the ones that lay down our lives for the world. That's the way it works. We sacrifice ourselves for them. If some trends continue in America and we're in for increasing marginalization and persecution, will we pray and love or will we only seek political answers and power answers? Yes, it's fine to call governments to righteousness and justice. The church has always done that. But if the government or groups of people more and more turn against us and harm us, will we follow Jesus? Will we manifest Jesus? And John Piper has, among many, has perceived that as the gospel is to go out into all the world, many, many believers must suffer and give their lives for that to happen. As Jim Elliott did with the Hurani people in Ecuador and his wife. After Jim Elliott and four of his fellow missionaries were killed, Elizabeth Elliott, his own wife, comes to those people that murdered her husband to love them and share the gospel with them. 
Look how much God's people can look like their own Savior who gave himself to rescue us. Oh, may God give you and me that kind of joy and that kind of concern, especially even now when we're likely not to be persecuted in those ways. How are we now joyfully sacrificing ourselves? Huh? So that others might know Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, the same spirit in Jesus that enabled himself to give himself away is the spirit you've given us that we might give ourselves away. May we do so in joy and faithfulness. Amen.